Al Jazeera podcast. Is the Panama Canal in danger of drying up? Low water levels caused by drought are forcing restrictions on the number of ships allowed to transit. Cargo deliveries are being delayed and supply chains hit worldwide. So is an alternative waterway needed? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. From his office in Panama City, next to the canal, is Lars Ostergaard Nielsen. He's head of operations for North America and Latin America for the giant shipping and logistics company Maersk. In London is James Baker. He's containers editor for the maritime information provider Lloyd's List. And in Daytona Beach in Florida, Jean-Paul Rodrigue is a professor at Hofstra University in the Department of Global Studies and Geography. He's also a specialist in port logistics and shipping. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Lars, as we mentioned uh, in the intro there, uh, as I understand it, you are able to see at least some of the vessels that would like to enter the Panama Canal from outside of your office window. I, I want to ask you, uh, where do things stand as of now? Uh, do we know how many ships are still trying to transit through the canal and are waiting, and have wait times been improving? So, so yes, it is correct that I'm uh, I'm speaking to you from Panama and I'm near the, uh, the 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 water side here. So, so certainly there are a number of ships waiting, and and I would say I don't have an, an up to date, uh, accurate count right now, but but we are talking to the canal, and and it is probably just above a hundred uh, still waiting to to cross the canal. Uh, wait, waiting times are reported uh, for the vessels that are impacted. And perhaps that's the point we should talk about. Bis vessels are impacted, but it's reported to be around uh, 10 days at, at, the, at the current point in time. Uh, Lars, let me also ask you, how much concern is there right now when it comes to the kind of costs uh, this will add up to for the shipping industry? And how much of an impact is that having as of now? So I think from a uh, from a container carrier perspective, it's important to understand that actually we do uh, in general get access to the crossings that that we require. So so therefore, obviously, we, we are facing some cost in terms of the draft restrictions, which basically means we are losing a level of, of capacity in terms of how much cargo we can carry through. But we are actually not faced with significant waiting times. So it, it's not a, a major concern at the current point in time for us. Uh, Jean-Paul, uh, Panama is about halfway through its rainy season right now. How unusual is what is going on right now when it comes to this drought and, and the time that it has hit in the middle of the wet season? Yeah, it has been, I would say, an ongoing problem for a few years. Uh, the Pan people at the Panama Canal Authority were talking about their concern about uh, a potential water shortages for a year now. And actually, the new locks were designed with that concern in mind. But uh, over the last, I would say, half a year or so, it's been a rather unusual in terms of rainfall. It's probably part of a long-term cycle, and eventually it, uh, it's going to abate. But meanwhile, there is less water, and therefore less water, less capacity. Uh, James, there have been concerns uh, about water shortages in the Panama Canal in the past. Was the drought that is currently being experienced uh, expected? Were there concerns, as you understand it, that this might happen? And, and would you say that there is a concern that the Panama Canal could be in danger of drying up completely at some point? Oh, very unlikely it's going to dry up completely any time uh, in our lifetimes. Um, this, uh, this is a significant sort of impact this year, it's it's by by no means the the only time this has happened. 
So again, you know, Panama does go through these cyclical weather changes. Um, we do, do have the El Nino this year that's making it far more, um, or it's having far more of an impact. But um, yeah, uh, unlikely to dry up for a long time yet. Uh, Lars, um, going forward, what does this mean for supply chains? I mean, talk about it compared to where it is now and what are the concerns of where it might be a few months from now or a year into this? Yeah, so, so in the immediate future, uh, the, the main uh, impact on supply chain is that we are potentially seeing a little bit less capacity available uh, on some of the routes that, that crosses the canal. This is being taken care of on the container segment in terms of actually sending uh, additional vessels that, that actually faces less restrictions, so essentially using the old locks. Um, should the drought continue, um, and I think it is important to recognize that the canal has been announcing that they do potentially expect uh, implications for the coming uh, as long as 10 months. Um, then, of course, we will see uh, potentially less capacity. Uh, what does that then mean for supply chains? Well, it, it means that, that uh, our customers and, and us as providers in the supply chain will have to continue to look for, for potentially for some alternatives to make sure that we keep cargo flowing. I think it is important to recognize that, that uh, having draft restrictions in the Panama Canal is not unusual per se, uh, but what's unusual this time around is that it seems to be dragging on for, for longer than what we've seen in the past. But, but companies like, like Maersk and, and others, we, we are used to dealing with this and, and have mechanisms in place for how we can adjust uh, our intakes of the ship to match the, the available draft through the canal. Jean-Paul, I saw you reacting to some of what Lars was saying there, and it looked like you might want to jump in. So I'm going to give you that opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I, I agree quite a lot what you just said. Uh, but also the impact is very, I would say, specific to the region. Uh, it will be virtually little or no impact to Europe or European supply chains, especially from coming from Asia. Uh, but for North American supply chain, that might be a different uh, story, particularly for over, let's say, the Trans-Pacific routes with the uh, with, on the U.S. East Coast. This is where it's going it's to have, start to have an impact in terms of capacity, reliability, and eventually, you know, when you have some capacity and reliability issue, you have to have a little bit more inventory or uh, more planning and, and that uh, incur additional costs for the importers. Uh, James, let me ask you, uh, from your vantage point, how quickly can a disruption like this to the canal's operation, you know, felt being as it's rippling through the global economy? Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> It's, it's, it's hard to say specifically. I mean, to be honest, we've not really seen any impact yet. Um, the, you know, the big sort of container trades are still able to get through there at the moment. Obviously, they're paying a bit more. They've got booked slots. <clears throat> We're not going to, you know, people have we've heard these sort of fears of, uh, you know, there being a shutdown at Christmas. Um, goods are not going to get through for Christmas. That's not going to happen. Um, the What is more likely to happen at the moment is we're getting... Um, uh, reroutings for some of the uh, other classes of vessels, uh, dry bulkers and tankers, which are having to go around the capes instead. Now that's going to add um, a lot of distance, a lot of fuel burn, and that's potentially going to put the freight rates up for those commodities, um, far more so than it's going to impact the sort of containerized goods. Uh, James, let me also ask you, um, it's expected that these current restrictions will be in place at the Panama Canal for, I, I believe it's at least 10 months. I, I want to ask you, um, is that timeline from your point of view realistic or do you think potentially it could be extended or possibly even shortened? 
Well, it's really going to depend on what happens with the weather. Um, you know, um, the canal's been trying to find ways of saving water for a long time. Um, ever since it uh, opened its new locks in 2016, there's been a, a plan, but nothing's really been done about it to try and conserve more water. Um, now, it, it really does come down to how much is, is coming into that catchment area, into the into the Gatun Lake. Um, so nobody can really tell them to, other than the weather forecasters. But yeah, potentially, yeah, the 10 months will get us through to the end of the next um, rainy season, which I think they'll, they'll be wanting to try and stock up the, the lakes as much as possible. So quite possibly that, that will be realistic. Um, and then we'll have to see what the next dry season looks like. Lars, when we talk about the knock-on effect uh, of all this, um, doesn't less uh, business revenue for the canal ultimately mean higher prices for consumers? And, and if so, when would that expect to be seen? When, when would that impact consumers? So, so certainly, I mean, obviously, I don't want to speculate on, on the revenue stream for the Panama Canal, but, but obviously one could assume that, that having less crossings would result in, in less revenue for the canal. And I think it's important to, to recognize the way the canal is structuring its tariffs. So I would say I, I don't personally expect that we would be met with any increasing cost from, from crossing the canal anytime soon. And therefore, at least for the container segment of the markets, uh, I, I don't foresee that this will have any immediate uh, cost implications. I think, as James uh, expressed, I think there are other segments of, of trade, of, of shipping, that is, is uh, more impacted, and that's uh, probably where you could see more impact than, than in the containerized uh, segments. Jean-Paul, one of the questions uh, that is coming up right now is if at some point in the future an alternative canal could be built, um, another way perhaps for ships to get from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Now, uh, for a long time, there has been this idea that perhaps there could be a canal built in Nicaragua. It's something that's been proposed before, but it has never materialized. Um, is that something that you believe might be a viable option at some point going forward? At this point, uh, very, very unlikely. Um, the major factor is, uh, again, you have to bear in mind that Nicaragua was initially a, a, some kind of a com, an alternative to Panama when the, the whole system was being designed and a decision was made to build a canal in Panama because it was a much better solution. Uh, and Nicaragua is a much more expensive solution. It has its own constraint. You are uh, dealing with actually much more engineering, much higher cost. And I have a very difficult time to wrap my head around what will be the cost and the potential, I would say, revenue generation you could get with this project. And that's actually one of the major reasons why the, in, in the last cycle of consideration, which was around 2014, uh, it, the, uh, the project was essentially abandoned. Uh, James, what do you say? Uh, is an alternative waterway ultimately needed? And is the idea of a canal being built in Nicaragua uh, at all realistic? I don't think the Nicaragua Canal is realistic. Just the basic geology of the country is so much different. That they, uh, as, as I said, that, um, the, the engineering, uh, I mean, uh, when it was last touted, they were talking about uh, costs in the range of 75 billion. Um, that strikes me as ridiculously low. We're trying to build a high-speed rail network in the in the UK of one line at the moment. That's costing over 80 billion. So the idea that you could dig your way through uh, Nicaragua for less than that is uh, uh, so it seems slightly unrealistic. So um, yeah, it, would it be needed? I, I genuinely don't think so. I think that you know, it, assuming that this weather 
pattern does reverse when we get we don't have an El Nino year after year. Um, hopefully, the Gatton Lake will refill and the canal will continue to keep um, serving shipping as it has done. Um, uh, just to go back to those figures, I mean, <clears throat> at the moment, yeah, there are, um, I think we counted, well, the Panama Canal listed 124 ships waiting as of as of today. Um, they've reduced the number of transits by only a handful of day um, in both directions. So it, it's, it's not like this canal has stopped or is about to stop. So I think, yeah, it does need some perspective on this. But well, that's James, certainly, yeah. Well, James, let me ask you this. Uh, when it comes to the ships that regularly transit through the canal, uh, is there a level of concern that exists right now that would cause any of these companies uh, to try to look for alternative routes that are already available and that would be viable to them at this particular time? Well, I think you'd have to speak to Lars on that one more than me. But, um, I mean, yeah, for the U.S. East Coast trade, if you're coming from, if you're trying to get goods from China to the U.S. East Coast, um, Panama Canal is not the only direction. Um, it's about five days longer to come via Suez, um, which, given there's a lo lot of shipping capacity in the world at the moment, is in some ways not a bad thing. That would uh, use up some of that um, overcapacity that's in the market. Um, and also from areas sort of south of, or in Southeast Asia, it's actually shorter to get to the US East Coast via Suez. Um, so there are the new alternatives. The South American fruit trades coming up to Europe because they do rely on coming through um, the Panama Canal. There are experts who suggest that in order to make the canal viable in a future uh, with more frequent extreme weather conditions, infrastructure changes to the canal will ultimately be needed. Um, I want to get your perspective on this. How costly do you think something like that would be? How long would it take? Would it be realistic as an endeavor? So, so I'm, I'm certainly not an engineer, but, but I, and I think it was expressed earlier by, by one of my fellow colleagues on the call here, um, that you know, the canal has been working on, on finding ways, and I know they are still working on finding ways to, to increase the water flows into the, to the support system. Um, in terms of what that would cost, I, I simply don't know. But, but I think uh, also to James's point, it, it is important that we understand the trades that are being supported by the canal and that there are alternatives. So, so not only can we sail into the U.S. East Coast, uh, as James expressed, through the Suez, um, we also have the ability to, to move cargo via the U.S. West Coast uh, on, on a land option across the U.S., which is some, something that is uh, used by, by certain uh, customers across the U.S. So there are ways um, other than, than simply sailing through the canal that, that is being used, and that certainly could be an alternative is, is this will uh, be an issue we have to face for, for years to come. Uh, Jean-Paul, one of the things that was discussed a lot during the pandemic was how COVID-19 was impacting uh, supply lines. I, I want to ask you, uh, compared to what was going on then, how will this bottleneck impact shippers compared to how much COVID-19 impacted the supply chain? And, and what about uh, also the Suez Canal blockage that occurred in 2021? I mean, when you look at what's happening now compared to what happened during the pandemic and compared to what happened when there was the Suez Canal blockage, where are we at? Uh, I think the, it's not comparable. COVID was systematic across the world. Again, it was a multiplicity of effect, lockdowns, change in consumer patterns, and, and so on and so forth, on impracticability. Uh, the Panama Canal situation is, again, a capacity issue. 
which is manageable and predictable. You know what's happening, you have the schedules, you have the, I would say, the number of crossing per days. So that's, I would say, in, in one in way, non-comparable, but it's long-term. So it has an impact on, on shipping lines, going to start to maybe reassess the situation. Major importers and exporters are going to maybe change their, their, their routing, possibly. Uh, but uh, comparing to Suez, Suez was simply a one-week blockage, which was very unpredictable. And as soon as it was unclogged, the situation returned to normal relatively quickly. So uh, again, we, it's not comparable. You are, dealing, you are dealing here with something which is, I would say, on the radar screen within a very, I would say, relatively well-known time frame, while COVID and let's say the Swiss Canal blockage was relatively random and systematic event. Jean-Paul, also let me ask you, uh, had the congestion that had been caused by the pandemic when it comes to supply chains, um, had they largely eased before this Panama Canal bottleneck? I mean, were things essentially back to normal when it came to global supply chains and the shipping industry? As far as I can tell, yes, we were back down full circle, the shipping rates were down substantially, almost back to pre-pandemic level, and actually we're facing a situation over capacity. So that, that's aggregated current context. That's why there's not that much concern concerning the availability of ship this relatively over the coming time from a hempel capacity. Lars, I saw you reacting just now, and it looked like you also wanted to jump in, so please go ahead. Yes, please. No, because I, I think it's it's a very relevant point. Um, not only is it relevant to understand that things are essentially back to to, to pre-pandemic in terms of congestion having eased, I, I think the other point that that is very relevant is actually the learnings that uh, a lot of the industry players and and the the customers of the supply chain, so so the people we are serving, have actually learned during the the pandemic, and and that is to have redundancy in your supply chains and having alternatives. And it's one of the things that, that we are finding now that we are able to offer uh, alternative routing. So unlike uh, pre-COVID, a, a lot of our customers would have basically one option to move cargo from, from one part of the world to another. Um, what has happened is a, a lot of uh, our customers have found a need to have alternatives and, and actually something like the current uh, challenges we are facing is actually showing that, that this is very valuable because now we can move cargo by a different means. As I mentioned, we could move it on rail across the US, for instance, or sail through the sewers. So, so I actually think we, we have actually learned something uh, through the pandemic that's now actually helping us uh, manage this uh, situation. James, I saw you also reacting just now to what Lars was saying. Did you want to jump in too? Yeah, I was just saying regarding we, one thing we saw when the service was blocked was there was a very rapid uh, rerouting there. We saw a lot of container ships that were due to come through the service head down south under the Cape of Good Hope and back up through the Atlantic, those that were going to the um, to the Atlantic, so, uh, to the Atlantic seaboard of the US. So I think this just sort of goes to support this idea that, yeah, ships are very movable and supply chains now are very movable. Uh, if you're wanting to get something to the Middle East of the, of the US, um, it, it's as easy to bring it in through, you know, even up to Canada or to um, Los Angeles and Long Beach, and then rail it or truck it through to where you want it to be, as it is to bring it through Suez, uh, sorry, through Panama Canal um, into the East Coast and truck it from there. So there is that flexibility there in the shipping sector, particularly in the containerized supply chains. Uh, Lars, uh, you know, we talked about where things are now compared to where they were in the shipping industry and global supply chains during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we also talked about how what's happening now compares to the blockage in the Suez Canal. But I want to ask you, when it comes to what are the concerns about climate change and how that could impact, you know, supply chains and shipping routes going forward? 
No, I, I think uh, I think by this point in time we, we do have enough evidence that that it's clear that that as an industry, uh, so here I'm, I'm talking on on the shipping industry, but also logistics, of course, that that clearly the need for decarbonizing our operations is very clear, um, and and I think it, it's very important that that we uh, across the industry we, we take this very seriously and put some very concrete measures in place and um, there are a lot of initiatives across the industry to to try and address this um, as an example we, we are having our first carbon neutral container vessel actually being, being bunkered today in, in Rotterdam um, and, and she's on her way for her first voyage starting next month so the industry is taking steps this is a long-term endeavor but, but it, it's very important that the industry and all of us across the industry realizes that, that this is something that we all have to take very seriously and invest and develop uh, across the, the supply chain. Jean-Paul, let me also ask you, I mean, I mean, how much is climate change a factor in all this? How much concern is, is this causing right now? Um, this is a subject which is, I would say, um, puzzle me a lot uh, because, again, it's very difficult to assess, uh, again, the extent uh, of, of the impact of climate change. But what I find the most, you could say, damaging is not the, the impact of climate change, is the reaction. How people are changing supply chains. And when we talk about decarbonization, it sounds great, but also it may involve a significant higher price, energy prices, and also uh, shortages. So that, that, in my opinion, again, there's a risk of a to climate change, fair enough. But my biggest concern and fear is how policymakers and government and also uh, carriers and among others are going to react and overreact to this and embrace strategies that may come to be very unsustainable and excessively damaging uh, to the welfare of the population. James, uh, let me ask you, uh, how much uh, concern is there right now about the potential for broader disruptions going forward? I think this is something that everybody is concerned about in, in, in any industry. Um, you know, we, we don't know how bad things are going to get or, or when they're going to get really bad. But, I mean, every, everyone knows that climate is having a, a major, major effect. I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've got an example of it affecting infrastructure here. But, um, another example is what happens to ports and terminals if we're getting increased storms, um, rising sea levels, so on. Um, and, and even for when we've got a lot more, potentially a lot more bad weather, um, we've got a sort of hurricane season kicking off in the Atlantic now, um, whether that's going to mean a lot of rerouting, um, a lot of making shipping itself more challenging. So you know, and I, I think the jury's still out, but I think that we all know the direction of travel. Uh, Lars, if, if shipping becomes much more challenging, as uh, you know, whether it's due to climate change or, or other factors, um, how much more difficult does that make things for the global economy? I mean, I know right now there's not a, a huge level of concern about what's going on when it comes to the panel today. But going forward, if we're talking worst-case scenarios, how, how dire could things get for the global economy? Well, well um, I, I think we can look back at, at the last uh, two or three years from the pandemic, where, of course, we saw a major shift in, in supply and demand, and, and we saw what that did to, to the cost of logistics and global markets and how that then was a factor, obviously not the only factor, but a factor potentially in, in inflationary pressures that then has a knock-on effect on interest rates, on how you how you conduct your policies, your monetary policies, et cetera, et cetera. So, so certainly it, it could be a factor, but I'll have to say at, at the current point in time and with the actions that are being taken, I still think that's a scenario that, that perhaps is uh, hopefully far out in the future and something that, that we will never get to. 
All right, well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Lars Ostergaard-Nielsen, James Baker, and Jean-Paul Rodrigue. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Katya Lopez-Odayan, Fungi Nguyen, and Jim Gilchrist. Studio sound was by Eli Elhani. The program was edited by Andre Ostwizen, Zainabad, Khaled Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next episode. This week on The Take, Japan is releasing treated radioactive wastewater into the Pacific. Hear why some locals are worried about their lives and livelihoods. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Get it wherever you get your podcasts.